Opening April 12th, Missing Link is the fifth film from the Portland, Oregon area animation studio Laika, whose previous films are Coraline, Paranorman, The Box Trolls, and Kubo and the Two Strings. An Annapurna presentation, Missing Link is a Victorian-era set story that follows the globetrotting adventurer Sir Lionel Frost, voiced by Hugh Jackman, and Mr. Link, the legendary Bigfoot, voiced by Zach Galifianakis. Joining them on the journey to find Mr. Link's ancestors, the Yeti, is the resourceful Adelina, voiced by Zoe Saldana. I offer you a glimpse of a legendary creature, lost in time. Neither ape nor man, but a giant. He's had many names. Actually, I go by Susan. Susan. Yeah, Susan. That is a girl's name. Yes, that's correct. It suits you. Chris Butler is the film's writer, director, and character designer, and the film is produced by Ariane Sutner and Travis Knight. Some familiar members of the Leica team are also back as department heads, including Oscar-nominated visual effects supervisor Steve Emerson and costume designer Deborah Cook, who's the only person to be nominated for a Costume Designers Guild Award for an animated feature. Two-time Oscar-nominated film composer Carter Burrell wrote the score. Joining us on today's podcast is Chris Butler, I'm Carolyn Giardino. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Chris Butler earned his first directing credit alongside Sam Fell for Laika's Paranorman, for which the pair earned an Academy Award nomination. Butler also wrote the screenplay for that film. And Chris worked on previous Leica films, Coraline and Kubo and the Two Strings. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me. So with Missing Link, this is a story ultimately about friendship. But like Paranorman, you also told the story of some misfits. Tell us a little bit about the idea for the story. There's always misfits. You know, they tend to make the most compelling characters, I think. So it's interesting you mentioned Paranorman because I feel like my childhood was made up of horror movies. John Hughes movies, Indiana Jones, Sherlock Holmes, and Monsters. And now with these two movies, I've pretty much ticked all of those. (laughs) (laughs) So I did my, you know, my zombie movie period. And yeah, I wanted to do a big, grand adventure movie. I wanted to have a stop-motion Indiana Jones. And that was the original seed of the idea. And I thought, rather than searching for lost treasure or lost artifacts? What if he was searching for mythical creatures? And that way, I got to play in that Ray Harryhausen world that was so important to me as well. Tell us about the inspiration for Sir Lionel and for Mr. Link. I know everyone always says you write what you know, or you write about yourself. And I think that's true, even if you're writing the most absurd fantasy. So I think between the two of them, Sir Lionel and Mr. Link is me. Unfortunately, I think I'm probably more Sir Lionel than I am Mr. Link. (laughs) And he's the more charming one, I think. No, I wanted this traditional kind of leading man, like a stereotypical ripping yarn kind of hero. But I wanted him to be flawed. And I think it's interesting when you have a character who has issues, and in Sir Lionel's case, he's pretty selfish. But you also want him to be compelling to the audience. You want them to be on his side. And that was actually the reason for casting Hugh Jackman in that role, because he is effortlessly charming. His British accent is better than mine, which is annoying. (laughs) And he just brought this effervescent charm to this character. There's a schoolboy-like passion 
to him in his pursuits. So you are on his side, even though he's making questionable decisions. And I think Link is, you know, the yin to his yang. It's definitely an odd couple movie. It's buddy comedy in some ways. And they are going on this grand adventure. So I think Lionel's opposite is Mr. Link. He is a true innocent. He doesn't think about himself really at all. And I think Zach Galifianakis brought such an innocence to him and such a beautifully observed naivety. And they really just balance each other out. They are the best examples of an odd couple in the way that they kind of feed off each other. I shall get you there to the place you belong. And in return, you will get me to mine. Oh, yes. I'll prove the existence of not just one, but an entire evolutionary branch of missing links. Imagine the headlines then. Oh, well, you, you really mean that you're going to take me? Of course. I give you my word. Okay, what is it? What? Your word. No, it's a figure of speech. Sounds good. What is it? The word, my dear fellow, is trust. Now, in making this film, you again use Leica's technique of combining stop motion, which is effectively frame-by-frame animation using puppets and actual sets, with computer-based animation. For the uninitiated, tell us about the making of this movie. (laughs) So... That in itself, I mean, you summed it up very, very cleanly. It is a long, messy, brutal process. You start with a script, obviously, like any movie, and then you storyboard the whole thing out. And you do that because you really need to know what your shots are before you put a camera on set. There's no moving the camera mid-shot or finding a new angle because these things are done a frame at a time. I think the big difference to me between stop-motion animation and 2D or CG animation is that these are physical things. It's a physical puppet on a physical set. And I think that is really the beauty of it as a medium. It is the closest to live action in that it's real light on real objects. And there is something intangibly wonderful, magical about that. And I think it's to do with the imperfection of real life. You look at these handmade costumes and how they look under real light. And it's not something you can easily replicate in a computer or with a drawing. So you literally have this small army of animators for two years, nearly, out on stages, on sets, under hot lights, manipulating these puppets a frame at a time, moving the puppet by tiny increments and then taking a picture and then moving it again. And to do that, you... 3D printed, and this is like it was the first studio to use this technique, each of the individual expressions yes. on those faces. And as I understand it, in all, you had more than 100,000 face parts for all of the puppets yeah, on this is film. Yeah, like 102,000 or something? I, it's like almost twice as many as we had for the last one for Kubo. What has advanced in this process since Kubo? So we are using different printers again. Every time we try and push the innovation and To explain a little further, the puppets themselves are essentially like sculpts. They're like silicon with a metal infrastructure, if you like, that enables you to manipulate them. It's called an armature. But like you said, the facial animation is actually done in the computer by a whole different team. And then that is printed out. Each frame is printed out as a separate face. And that is plugged onto the puppet for each frame on set. 
we are constantly trying to push the nuance of our animation. And I think in terms of the sophistication of performance, this movie is by far the best thing we've ever done. You know, to speak of the facial animation, in all the other movies, we create a kit system where you have all these different mouth shapes and all these different eyebrow shapes, and you'd combine them into sequences in the computer and then use that to define the dialogue. Well, we didn't do that on this movie. Every single shot is bespoke. So every single shot is a performance specific to that line of dialogue or to that shot. There is no kits anymore. That enabled us to do a degree of acting, I think, that we've never done before. And that's probably one of the things I'm most proud of on this movie is the facial animation. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Because the mouths were CG then? Well, (laughs) it's a little bit of everything, to be honest, because you start off with drawings of poses and we often use a 2D animator to come up with like test lines of dialogue and then you give that to the facial animation team and they work in the computer with a three-dimensional digital sculpt of the face and they create all the expressions they rig the face so that it can smile it can shout it can frown and then using that digital model you animate the dialogue, and then that's what gets sent to the 3D printer, and that's where you print out the faces. Now, you also had more than 100 sets, (laughs) and a lot of locations for this grand adventure. They were in England, they were in the U.S., they went to India. Let's talk about the ship. Was that one of the more complex sets? I mean, they were all complex, yeah, for sure. One of the reasons we wanted to make this movie was because of its scope and scale, and because we have our in-house VFX department led by Steve Emerson, we are able to troubleshoot, to discuss the challenges for these movies right from day one, and we can start to plan how we're going to do this. And I think that's enabled us to have digital set extensions that allow us to have these huge locations with which to play out the action. The ship was a challenge in itself because there's a big chase sequence that's taking place through the bowels of this industrial ship while it's in a storm at sea. And it's almost Inception-like in that, you know, at one point the characters are running on the wall because the ship is, you know, mounting the side of a wave. It's a great sequence. I love it. And I remember when we storyboarded it, we were like, um, I'm not sure we can actually do a lot of this, but, you know, you figure it out. And because the sets are huge, really. How large was the ship? It's made in different sections. So the corridors were all kind of like... You know, you take a bit of one and there's a wall from one there and then you'd move that onto another one. We also made part of the deck of the ship to scale with the puppets. And then they also built a miniature that was given to the VFX department that they scanned and then created a digital version of the full ship as well. But that sequence in particular, when you've got these characters running down a corridor that's moving, I mean, that's a lot of rigging to actually move the set. So we ended up moving the cameras instead in relation to the set But that's not easy either, because then the poor animator has got to understand that what they're moving, what they're manipulating, is reacting to something that's not actually happening to the set. It makes my mind hurt when I think about what they had to do in order to achieve that. But they did it. And I think it's because each time we make one of these things, we push the boundaries a little further, we get that much more ambitious, and we learn stuff. Everything that we learned on the last four movies was kind of funneled into this, and that enabled us to do a sequence like that, that we wouldn't have been able to do that five, ten years ago. Toward the end of the movie, when they arrive at Shangri-La, they cross an ice bridge. 
And as I understand it, this involved 64 individually rigged ice blocks <laughs> and a CG bridge model with 37,000 parts. <laughs> Quite possible. These are the numbers in the press <laughs> materials, but please explain to us how you did this bridge. <laughs> well, we knew we weren't going to be able to make it full scale to the puppets. And so as is often the case, you will plan out which portion of that bridge are you going to use the most. So there's a lot of action takes place on the broken edge of the bridge. So you build that full scale. And then you build the, the whole thing in the computer. There's also, in that same sequence, that bridge collapses, which is why all those individually rigged blocks are required, because that thing just crumbles while the characters are running on it. Again, another sequence like I shouldn't really have written that into the script, <laughs> but I did. I mean, you spend a lot of time at the beginning of one of these things where you're figuring out how do we approach this? And I think it's worth mentioning, I already mentioned the VFX department, but they deserve a whole heap of praise for what they do at the studio. Because we talk about these movies as stop motion movies, and they are. That's what they are at the heart. But they are hybrids you know we use every tool we use every trick in the book in order to create the best looking image up on that screen and the amount of work that goes into it beyond the puppets and the physical sets the digital work that you know the, the 2d work the the design work is so vast and i am not a stop-motion purist i like that we are unable to use all these cool new innovations in order to tell more complex stories. Another scene that similarly used both techniques was the opening sequence where we meet Sir Lionel in a boat on the sea. A lot sea. of boats. A lot of boats in this movie. Yes, right. And we meet Nessie and this sequence takes place both above and below the water. Mm -hmm. Would you describe the making of that scene and what was stop motion, what was CG? That was another tricky one where, you know, the intention is to do it so you can't see the lines. You can't see which bit is which. And I definitely think we achieved that on this movie. There, I know how we did it. And there's still shots where, you know, I have trouble telling the difference between what's CG and what's practical. Obviously, with the water, we do that digitally because to do that practically, it's not just a matter of how impossible it would be to achieve. I think it's also you want a certain sense of realism. I want to feel that this is recognizably, it's stylized, but it's recognizably the real world. So if you have this big water sequence, I want the water to feel like water, you know? So that's the reason for going digital with that. Nessie herself, we tried numerous methods to realize that, and she was a really odd shape. It was based on a sketch that I did many years ago, and it's basically like a balloon with a neck on it. <laughs> Not a very animator-friendly shape, as it turns out. And they built a prototype, and we moved it around, and that didn't work. So then we built a full-scale Nessie head, and one of the stage animators, or a couple of them actually, played around with that, and we got whatever we could from that practical giant Nessie head puppet. But then we handed that over to the VFX team, and they built out the rest of the creature and they also replaced using the practical animation as a template they replaced it with their version so it's really hard to tell like whose is it but i do think that it was such a complex character and i don't think we would have been able to realize it without the digital side of things they did a phenomenal job on that creature and for me it's like nessie's cool but when you're underwater the other thing that's 
incredibly cool to me is all the dirt and the grit in the water and seeing the bubbles and you know when you composite all that stuff together it's like that's not a puppet that thing is real you know and to give the listener a sense how large was the head that you actually built well it was big enough to work with the full-scale puppets and at one point she has a character in her mouth so it was big enough to have her character in her mouth and I think we built it down to a just the bottom of the neck, that version. Now, as I understand it, all of the puppets were a little bit smaller in scale than you did on the last movie. Could you explain that and why that was? You build the scale of a movie around the main character, and all of our previous movies have had child protagonists. So if your main character is a 10-year-old, then the scale of the movie is bigger. Because you've got to think about it. Once you've got that initial character design, The rest of the world has to fill in around that. So that means, how does that puppet stand in a doorway? How big are they? And once you've got the size of that doorway, then you've got the size of the room. Then you've got the size of the building. Then you've got the size of the world. Having an adult be the main character meant that we could make everything smaller. Because there is an optimal size for these puppets where the armature is at its most efficient. You don't want the puppet to get too big or too heavy because it's very difficult. You know, the animator ends up wrestling with it rather than animating it. So you're trying to make things as functional as possible. And it did mean that we could make our adult characters a little bit smaller. And that, in turn, meant that our sets, I think it was like a third smaller which meant we could have more of them, which meant we could make this travelogue. There were so many locations. And I think if it had been, say, the scale of Kubo, we wouldn't have been able to have them all. Again, to give the listener an idea of the scale, so how tall was Mr. Link's puppet? Well, Sir Lionel is 13 inches, and so Link is a little taller than that, maybe 16, I'm not sure. But 13 inches is a pretty good size for a main puppet. What was your favorite scene in the movie? Hmm... There is a montage played out when the characters first arrive at Shangri-La. And I think from a design point of view, it's strikingly beautiful. And it's a real treat. I wanted the destination of this journey to be like the reward for the audience for watching this movie. So when they get to Shangri-La, I wanted it to be a wowing moment. And I think what we achieved with the design, thanks to Nelson Lowry, the production designer, and then on top of that, the Carter Burwell music, it gives me goosebumps. So I love that just from an aesthetic point of view. There's also some of the quiet stuff, you know. There's a scene at the start of the movie where Sir Lionel's in his study, and it's really a lot about him talking. But I think it was the first time that I really got super excited about the nuance and the sophistication of the facial performances. And it's lit so beautifully by one of the cameramen, Mark Stewart. It's just sumptuous. You know, this light streaming through and there's dust motes in the air. And I was just, I could live in this place. I want to be in this world. So it's different things. You know, I, I, I love the whole thing. But those are two moments anyway. And then you were also the character designer. Which character was the trickiest to design and why? Well, we ended up, because I tried different character designers and we ended up going back to some initial sketches that I'd done very early which was why I ended up kind of pursuing that. But I did work with two excellent fellows, Warwick Johnson-Cadwell, prolific illustrator and comic artist, and Julian Rolls, a wonderful designer. And the three of us kind of fleshed out this whole world. In terms of what was the most difficult, I know that there were designs that were incredibly difficult to make into puppets. Certainly 
Link himself, because he's this giant hairy creature. One of the yetis, played by Emma Thompson, has very long hair all over her. I mean, that's impossible to make into a puppet. But we achieved it, again, with a combination of VFX and practical puppetry. Let's talk a little bit about how you handled fur and hair, because when you're shooting these frame by frame, obviously that's a very difficult task. But I know you're also using CG. So how did you approach that challenge? Well, you explore. And, you know, I think it's something that we knew was going to be problematic because of Kubo. They had the monkey puppet, and I know that was a huge challenge. We'd learn lessons from that. We knew some things we did want to do, some things we didn't. My point of view, just from a design stand, was that we all know what chatter and crawl is on a puppet. If you think about King Kong, the way his fur kind of ripples because you can see the animator's hand on it. And that's got its own charm, but it wasn't what I wanted for this movie. And because the design of the movie was already so stylized, it made sense that the hair should be stylized too. So I wanted Link to be covered in this very very designed stuff the same way that the hair on the heads is designed it can't look like a different material and in the end the best solution was to sculpt it so we sculpted it in place well i say we i obviously didn't have to do (laughs) but there's these hugely talented sculptors who are individually sculpting clay tufts of hair and then of course that becomes the silicon puppet It was a complete nightmare to try and figure out how that fur would move. Because if you've got a silicon mass, it creases in odd ways. And as soon as you've got a puppet moving its arm in an odd way and you see a crease, then it feels rubbery. It doesn't feel real. So it was about how to achieve almost like a scaling of hair on top of hair. Link's neck alone, we called it his cowl, became an engineering marvel in how they had all those individual tufts be able to move on top of each other. Now, because that was already so complex, when we had scenes in the movie where, you know, there's a storm or a blizzard, it was too difficult to then think about individually moving this stuff. So that's where we went to the VFX department, and they came up with a system which involved painting the tufts of hair with um, UV paint, and then being able to manipulate them after the fact. Again, using every trick in the book to make it work. But without a doubt, Link was our most challenging puppet that we've ever had. I think in the end, he's brilliant. I've watched this movie 400, 500 times. You know, I used to watch it every week to try and you know, keep everything in my head. And I found myself not that long ago, bearing in mind this is five years in, I was watching a scene with Link and Lionel talking, and for a moment I had to catch myself because I completely believed that these were real characters talking to each other. And that's me. So that's what you want. You want people to love the look of this thing, but you don't want it to become artificial. You want them to watch this because they're compelled by the characters in the story. Let's talk a little bit about the timetable. These movies take such a long time to make, and as I remember, you were already writing the script when Paranorman came out, which was 2012. When did you finish the script? When did it go into production? I had part of it written when Paranorman was coming out. It came together pretty easily, actually. I knew what the story was. I think I did two drafts in the end. But I also ended up getting involved with Kubo. So there was a period where I was doing a rewrite on Kubo and also writing this And they're very different movies, so I had to separate the week carefully. 
to try and keep my head in you know both worlds but we had the first draft pretty early and it really did not change that much sometimes these movies become entirely different entities by the time they come out there's a phrase story meltdown that you often hear in studios where they just realize it's not working and they just ditch it and start again while you're animating and that didn't happen on this i think it's great it's certainly great for me that i'm writer and director because it means i'm writing what i want to see that's on me you know i can't blame someone else for that so in a sense it's the only thing i had to really do with the script was just make sure it was tight you know i think the first version would probably been about two hours long and that was probably too much we would never have been able to make that. So, yeah, it came together pretty quickly. And then how many years was it in production? So it was a year in development, a year in pre-production, two years of shooting. And that's long, but it was, you know, an ambitious undertaking. Normally, it's a year and a half of production, maybe. And then, you know, a few months of post-production, which we've just finished. So it's five years. Which character do you see the most of yourself in? And what are those traits? Unfortunately, the character that is most like myself is Sir Lionel. Uh, <laughs> in what way? <laughs> it's not because he's selfish or I'm selfish, but he's eccentric. He is hugely passionate about his vocation. And I think there is a dizzy, childlike joy in what he's pursuing. And I think I still have that when it comes to anima animation and making these things. You know, being British kind of helps. Now, you're, you're from Liverpool. Originally, I'm from Liverpool, yeah. This is not a Liverpoolian accent. But I've been here a long time in the States, I think 13 years, but I'm still resolutely British. So, yeah, definitely a lot of Sir Lionel. I think there's a bit of me in all those characters, which is sometimes very worrying. So how did you find your way from Liverpool to Lyca? <laughs> I always knew I wanted to work in animation, like from the earliest age. I think I was three. That was never a doubt in my mind that I would somehow get there. And it was tricky because when I grew up in the 1980s, the animation industry was not at its strongest. There wasn't a huge amount of stuff going on. And the stuff that was going on was by no means as diverse as it is now. There has definitely been a new renaissance of animation and opportunity for various reasons. But that wasn't around when I was a kid. So I had to you know, aggressively pursue this artistic career. And that took me uh, down to London. There's a lot of commercial work going on. I did a little bit of stuff for Disney. There was no movies happening in England, really, at that point. And then Tim Burton's Corpse Bride came along. And that was actually what got me into stop motion, because before that, I was 2D. I was always a story artist, sometimes designer. I did some 2D animation. But it was wonderful to play in this new world, especially because as a story artist, if you're trying to think up a shot or where to put the camera, on Corpse Bride, you could walk onto the set and you could put yourself in that scene. And that was a revelation to me. It made me really start to think about the physicality of filmmaking. It made me a better filmmaker. And I think that was the turning point for me because then more stuff started to come in, more opportunities. I heard about Coraline happening in Portland with Henry Selleck. Henry and, Selleck. Yeah, and I knew I wanted to work with him. And I came over. I didn't even come and interview or visit first. I was just like, yeah, I'm going. I moved over. I think I agreed to move out there for six months, and that was 13 years ago. So it worked out. I would say so. Yeah. And what's next? Are you working on another script for Leica? People keep asking me that, and I'm like, I 
my head is still so far into this one. I can't even... I, I want to take a break. I found that that is the tricky thing when you come out of a movie that you've been so involved with for so long. The next thing you work on, you have to, like, exercise the previous movie. It takes some getting rid of. So I want to go on vacation. That's what I want. I want to go and sit... I'll never do this, but I want to go and sit on a beach and read a book. That's not, never going to happen. Not the Himalayas or anything. <laughs> no. <laughs> no mountains. Well, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the film. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.